Welcome back to another episode of It's Always Friday the 13th, the podcast that takes a very rigorous look at each film in the epic Friday the 13th saga. We do a thorough autopsy on all of them and figure out what uh, what made them work and in some cases what made them a abortion. <laughs> way, to, way to make it edgy john <laughs> that's me man that's my brand so anyway uh, we we kind of hit a detour on this leg of our our journey and um it, it, it feels somewhat uh fitting that because Fred, freddy versus jason is the next film to cover that we actually talk about nightmare on elm street this time uh, just to kind of ease into that and maybe position ourselves and Freddy into a little bit more of a mono e mono equal role in this equation rather than him just kind of being the opponent for Jason. And, you know, let's give the devil his due. This is a great character as well. And so we're not going to do a whole podcast about Nightmare on Elm Street, but we will talk about the classic 1984 film. So, surprise, everybody. Here we go. So, um, who wants to uh, kick this off? We're going to be a little bit more freewheeling this time around. Let's just kind of um, see what evolves in this conversation. Let's start with the most obvious thing. First time you saw the movie, your sort of relationship with it. Let's start with you, Mike. Um, your your experience of Nightmare on Elm Street. I'll tell you what. Uh, I I obviously had a bunch of friends who were horror nerds as well as I was, and uh, they had actually seen Nightmare first. And uh, they were like, "Dude, you guys, he is going to da 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 da." I'm like, hey, yeah, 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 I'll get around to it. And it was that classic situation where um, I was grounded for being a juvenile delinquent. I wasn't allowed to go out on a uh, on a Halloween night. My parents said, you may not go out. And uh, so I, I sulked in the basement. And I said, well, if I can't go out, then uh, I'm going to watch some horror movies then. And by <laughs> an amazing coincidence, what happened to be playing was A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I watched that movie, and holy shit, did that movie scare the ever-loving bejesus out of yours truly. It scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it. I mean, there there, there I mean, several movies that really fucking scared me the first time I saw them. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, Shining, Exorcist, Jaws, and Nightmare was way up there. I mean, it fucking scared me, man. And why do you think that is? I would say that I was closer to the characters' ages by that point in time. Um, you know, Exorcist, Shining, uh, Night of the Living Dead I'd seen when I was younger, and uh, even though they were scary, they were more abstract. I wasn't able to put myself into those roles, whereas um, the characters in Nightmare, very much like the characters in the first Friday the 13th movie, are they're teenagers, but they're very, very young teenagers, like 13, 14, 15 years old. And uh, I was probably 11 or 12 at the time, and I was able to really plug my head into what these kids were dealing with. You know, I mean, Freddy was very clearly a, uh, a clear and present danger for a young man at my age range, uh, hanging around my bedroom, waiting to fall asleep. 
I think the universality of this is is that we all dream, you know, in a sense that it's something that you you can't help but not feel vulnerable to. It's something that there's no escape from. And if you're traumatized by the film, it only becomes worse once you go to bed after watching it as a kid. Yeah. And how does yeah, that not exactly. compound in your mind? Exactly. You know, I will say that this is also, I, I mean, John, like you just said, uh, it very much touched on a universal experience. I've never been a summer camp kid. I've never been trapped in a farmhouse. I've never been trapped in a Snowden hotel. I've never been uh, in a house in Georgetown getting haunted by a demon. You know, but I have gone into my bedroom, put on my headphones and fallen asleep. And it was that above and beyond everything else. It's like that universality of experience. It's like, dude, this guy, Freddy's coming to get you. And it's like, that scared the fucking shit out of me, oh boy. I was probably far too young to have seen this. Uh, that's that's what I remember. Is it's, I mean, much like Mike said, it scared the shit out of me. Um, my parents, my, my parents got divorced when I was very young and my mother remarried, um, and I inherited a stepsister who I had actually known before, but she was really into horror films and my, my, uh, parents were, were fairly liberal. And so as long as we could kind of handle it, they would let us watch pretty much whatever we wanted. And she really was the gateway for me where we started going to the video store. And this is, I mean, you're talking about, I'm looking at this movie came out in 84. You're probably talking somewhere between 1987 and 1990 when I, or 1988. I mean, it was really, you know, I was, I was under 10 and we were just going through the horror section by shelf. I mean, we would get three, four, five movies at a time and just plow through them. And when you were devouring movies that way, a lot of them, you know, I mean, even other Wes Cravens, like I'm sure we saw Deadly Friend and we saw, um, you know, Critters and whatever, you know, just whatever it was, we were just devouring it. And when you came across something that was really good, oh man, did it stand out. And I mean, I remember sitting on the couch in my living room, I remember where I was sitting when the movie ended and kind of sitting there in a daze being like, what did I just watch? And how am I ever going to go to sleep again? Um, <laughs> I mean, John, I think you hit on it in, in a lot of ways with the, the sleep, you know, the, the, that notion that something that comes for you in your sleep is universal. It's something that's universally feared. Um, but I also think it's suburban. There wasn't a lot of suburban horror uh, up to this point, I think. Um, I mean, it's something that you see a lot of, or, or even urban, I think, in the, you know, in J-horror. And I think that's part of why that was so effective when it started crossing the, the Pacific and coming to us like the ring and the grudge, um, was that these were scary things that weren't happening at the Overlook Hotel, that weren't happening at a summer camp. They were happening... In your neighborhood, paranormal activity, very much the same thing that it's hard to devise a concept for a horror film that plays effectively, you know, in the, the kind of places that most of us call home. And Wes Craven did that. And I think the other thing that really jumps out at me is when you talk about and again, especially when you're talking about 80s horror, um, you know, you're talking about Michael Myers, you're talking about Jason Voorhees. Um, there's a, a limited uh, set of imagery that you have to work with. And we've been talking for ages about, uh, 
you know, Jason coming out of the smoke or Jason sitting up in his grave or Jason, you know, climbing out of the, uh, the RV in, uh, Jason lives here. There is suddenly this wide world of imagery to play with that can come from anywhere. And it really, uh, Wes Craven was a, a professor of, uh, I mean, studied philosophy and, and writing in particular, but I think you really see this is somebody who knows Freud, somebody who knows Jung, um, who knows the power of those images. And, and especially, I think, the, the disjointed imagery of dreams and the power that that has. I mean, one of the most profound moments, just to, to jump wildly ahead, but in that famous dream sequence when Nancy is haunted by Tina in her body bag, she follows Tina out into the hall. And I, I remember this from the, the very first time I saw it. Um, again, at 8, 9, 10, however old I was, there are leaves blowing around the school hallway. Right. I, I, that's such a, a magnificent touch. And it's just it's the kind of unsettling detail that just by virtue of the way Friday the 13th is constructed, uh, it does not have available. And so uh, it really made a profound impact on me. Yeah, there's actually a shot in Freddy versus Jason that sort of echoed that for me, which is she's uh, the main character. Lori is in this police station and there's all these uh, missing children posters on the wall. And mm-hmm. suddenly like a, a inexplicable breeze rustles all of them rather violently. And we're very obviously completely indoors. So it's mm-hmm. a blatantly impossible but subtle effect that that clues you into the fact that she is now dreaming. That's something that we were taught by the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but I was very conscious watching it that I knew instantly when we were in a dream sequence because I've seen all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and I know I know the cue. Those are tricks that lots of directors have been trying to play on us, but boy, it all started with this one. Yeah, uh, I, I would say even within that sequence, Vic, that you touched on, which by the way, I, when she first looks up and she sees Tina in that body bag, this, that, that was the first, like everything up until then had, in, had induced dread within me, but that was the first scene, the first time watching this, that I distinctly remember going, holy fuck! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when she goes on to the hallway uh, and we get the leaves blowing and we know that she's now in a dream state and then she looks back and uh, the one student is... Uh, you know, very slowly whispering, dreaming, and the rest of the students are just facing forward and they're not paying attention to her. And we realize that there's no, even in a room full of other people, there is no help for her. Well, yeah, I mean, that moment is a showstopper when Tina shows up in that body bag and says, Nancy. Oh, dude. And then when she looks down the hall and uh, we see her getting dragged away, or her body bag getting dragged away by an invisible force and leaving a, a slug trail of blood. Holy fuck, dude. That, I mean, that, that, that shit is an 11 on the horror scale. Yeah. Interestingly, and I just noticed this in, uh, in preparing for this podcast, um, credited as the teacher, uh, I believe, in that scene is Lynn Shea, who would go That's on right. much success in uh, the Insidious franchise. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, what's interesting is uh, we're really looking at, uh, in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, we're looking at a really early film out of New Line. You know, they, they've got a really proto version of, the, I mean, even their, um, their corporate head mark. Uh, you know, we're really looking at, like, 
they're just barely out of the apartment. You know, yeah. uh, and there it's it's you can see in the cast and in the crew and the and the writers like uh, you know really early versions of people who would go on to you know be big executives for them or like you see like a lot of family names in the cast. You know, it's still like, like Lynn Shay. Yeah, exactly. It's still like just barely above an independent movie. And that's yeah. uh, among one of the many wonderful things about this film. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like the first Friday the 13th in that regard. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Hence the reason why we're doing Fr- Nightmare on Elm Street with this one. <laughs> Even though it's a podcast about Friday the 13th, it's all going to come together. John, I just have to point out. Never before this moment did I make that connection between Bob Shay and Lynn Shay. Which yeah, was, yeah. Was uh, Lynn <laughs> Shay is Bob Shay's sister. Sister, yeah. Mm-hmm. How about that? And I thought she was pretty good in the scene. Also, I mean, yeah. she she definitely doesn't seem like just a nepotism casting. I mean, obviously she doesn't have a whole lot to do, but she doesn't stand out like a sore thumb. Unlike Bob Shay in Freddy vs. Jason, by the way, where he has a cameo. Uh, I believe as the principal or a teacher, and he, he just he's awkward. So uh, anyway, uh, I want to dovetail off something Mike said um, before we really get into the nitty gritty of this. And I do want to give my story as well. But the kids in Nightmare are a higher socioeconomic class than the ones in Friday. And I think that's very interesting. It's about the same time, 1984, as the core four of Friday the 13th. But even the final chapter teens, and I'm not talking about Corey Feldman and his family, but I'm talking about Dead Fuck and his pals. uh, They're much more in keeping with the earlier Fridays, almost hick or hippie, in any case, sort of hard scrabble casts. Meanwhile, you immediately get in Nightmare on Elm Street that these are sort of pampered suburbanites. And you also get the feeling that it's Southern California, very clearly. There's palm trees not even hidden in the background. Um, It's all over this film, sort of L.A. uh, vibes. And it's funny because I I think they abandon that. And certainly in Freddy vs. Jason, they don't suggest that Springwood is in Southern California. But, uh, hey, this is a low-budget film shot in L.A., so there you go. Anyway, my experience with it, basically, I'm not you know, going to tell the, the whole long version of this story, but I have one anecdote that has really stuck with me. I was on a trip to Florida, and I was quite young, probably within a year of this film coming out, so you know, conceivably nine or ten. And I had this friend of the family, kind of a quasi-cousin, this girl, who um, was always sort of a tough-minded, into-genre kind of uh, person. And she was telling me about this film in these extremely reverent tones. Like, it, it was just the ultimate and the scariest film that she and any of her friends and anyone she'd ever talked to all agreed this was the scariest film they'd ever seen in their lives. And... Subsequently, uh, she she gave me a, a pretty much a play by play of certain sequences, and then subsequently, I remember waiting on the bus stop to go to school uh, back home in an Iowa, and kids walked me through the film. So it's one of those things where it it became a campfire tale for me long before I actually saw the film, and and there were few surprises in the film on some level for me, which is. Uh, very surreal experience, but yes, it's legend precedes it. 
So we begin with uh, poor Tina being uh, haunted and hunted in the boiler room. And uh, we establish the, the basic rule of this mythology, which is when she wakes up screaming from this dream, there is a physical manifestation of the trauma that she experienced in the dream, meaning that what happens to you in the dream will carry over into real life, which is essential and very, very scary uh, as a concept. And everyone is having these nightmares, it seems, like she's talking about it with her friends. Of course, Nancy, played by the great Heather Langenkamp, who is our protagonist of this film. And this other dude plays Glenn Lance. I don't know. I think he, he had some kind of a career later. It's, his name is Johnny Depp, I guess. I, I don't know. He probably, is that how you pronounce it? I, I think he ended up doing dinner theater somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> he's one of the cast, and there's also this fellow named Rod, who uh, definitely <laughs> he lives up to his name. Uh, he, he's he's all about that action, boss. They they kind of convene for the night. Uh, they're sort of trying to you know get through this uh, scary experience that Tina is having by supporting her, and Rod. Um, Bangs Tina, uh, for lack of a better (laughs) Supports the hell out of her, is what he does. Yes, Rod offers his rod of support. (laughs) The aptly named Rod. Yeah, you know, Rod is is very, obviously, uh, he's not only a broad stereotype, like, he's the kind of thuggish greaser dude, and like he's he's the kind of guy who like tells Johnny Depp like tackles Johnny Depp as like a prank, and he's just like I'm gonna punch you, and just like ain't all the stupid like you know grease two type shit they expect out of like a, a generic character like that. <laughs> but then we get like some really surprising humanity out of him uh, after events unfold, well, and that's one of the wonderful things about this movie is it isn't afraid to truck in kind of broad stereotypes, but then. As things kind of come together, uh, we actually see humanity uh, in Glenn and uh, Heather and Heather's dad and her mom, even in Rod. You know, we get a lot of humanity out of this, what would otherwise be like a throwaway stereotypical character. Well, and I think one of part of what makes that work, honest to goodness, and, and again, I mean, this is Wes Craven is is such a smart person and i mean even though he uh, god knows not all of his movies uh uh probably reflect that but rod is i mean even though his name is rod lane the actor's name is nick garcia uh and i think that it works to his advantage that he has cast a hispanic actor in this part because I'm we seeing Nick Corey. Him. Nick Corey is the name I'm seeing on uh, IMDb. And then I see where you're oh, getting sorry, Garcia. Yeah. 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 Um, his real name is Garcia, apparently. It's Garcia, correct. Right. Um, I, I mean, Tina is very much the, the scrubbed upper middle class, you know, blonde. You know, she's Melissa from part seven, part eight, part seven. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's a little bitchy. She's a little, uh, you know, upper middle class. And she's like very clearly like the high school girl who's fucking like a dude from the wrong side of the tracks because it's fun for her at this stage of her life. Well, but what I mean is that it's, it, it plays into our idea of stereotypes that the police would just assume that the guy from the wrong side of the tracks who, you know, who is Hispanic, uh, probably killed her. Um, and then to see him evolve beyond that stereotype and express some, 
humanity and, and actually develop into an interesting character. I mean, that's consider that compared to, uh, and I'm going to blank on the names, but the, uh, the, the motorcycle gang that we encounter in part three, Friday the 13th. Yeah. It's one year before this, one year before this, that film. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. I think that the, the way they treat this character in the film, much more sophisticated. Um, Yeah, exactly. I I think, you know, in, in all ways, I mean, that's, the right and proper and intelligent artistic approaches to yeah, give us a, a character who sees on one level a stereotype and we kind of go, okay, yeah, I, I get who that is. And then give them scenes in which they go, in which we see that they're actually human beings. And we, we see other versions of them. Uh, we see them being vulnerable. I, I, mean, uh, he's, I mean, Rod is uh, like scared shitless when he's in that cell. And like I mean, when he's, uh, I mean, after John Saxon imprisons him, uh, immediately assuming that he is the uh, you know killer of Tina, I, I and mean, he's really scared and he's like uh, very clearly uh, screaming for his innocence to the degree that Heather isn't. We we don't think that Heather is being dumb for buying into his story. A credit to his performance as well, frankly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he's solid. I mean, one of the things though that I wrestle with a little bit with this film logically is um, why now. You know, like there's no real catalyst, and this is kind of a classic Hollywoody development yes. note e yes. kind of a point to make. Yes. But hey, I guess it's in my it's been drilled into me at this point. Um, so I look at this and I'm like, usually there's some reason why Freddie wasn't doing this five years ago. You know, why all of a sudden are all of these kids having these dreams? And there's something in um, Freddie versus Jason that sort of raises this question in a different way, which is in Freddy versus Jason, we kind of established that Freddy needs people to be afraid of him in order to have his lethality. It's kind of like Candyman, actually, in a lot of ways. And in this film, it's sort of like maybe the festering, like they don't, the kids don't know about him, but the parents do. So has he been in the parents' dream, or how has he been building up to this moment where suddenly now he can kill Tina, whereas he couldn't have killed John Saxon or Ronnie Blakely or whoever else like years ago? Right. I, I think that. I mean, yeah. I, John, I, I'm, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Why now? Why here? Why da 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 da? And I mean, it's very de execy you know, yeah. thought process. And uh, I, I, mean, I, you know, Craven is the writer or director of this film, and he doesn't give a shit about that stuff. It's <laughs> he's mm-hmm. just like, it, yeah. it's, this is what's going on. Uh, I, mean, I guess, like, in the, I, I, what we're kind of, because we're, we all have a background in the industry, I, I mean, all of us are kind of searching for that one line in the film in which someone goes, 10 years ago today, you know, or whatever. Right. And, and that just kind of checks. On Friday the 13th. Right. And, and that just kind of checks the box. And ironically enough, Vic, I, like you just brought up, like even the Friday the 13th people were like aware of that need on some level. And Craven just doesn't give a shit. Because I think that uh, if we're going to talk about dream logic, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Nightmare gets away with a lot of shit that other horror movies just don't. Because it's like, it's a dream. It's a nightmare. Shit just happens. I don't know what to tell you. You know, I mean, why, why, does, I mean, why doesn't Freddy go kill John Saxon? Because he was a child molester and he killed children. So he's going to go after their children. Well, that's you know, another so. thing I kind of have a problem with on some level, even though I get this from a very production oriented standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so his beef. OK, I'll just lay it out in this way. In his life, 
he would go after little kids and mm-hmm. he particularly liked little girls and he was a child molester, child murderer, both, you know, we don't know the details at this point, but that's what he did. And then he was wronged by adults. He was wronged by parents. So what does he do in this movie? He goes after teenagers. <laughs> right. I, I, they're, I, I, and kind of circling back around to it though. I mean, they're, they're really young teenagers. And, and I, I, I that's something that I had forgotten about. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't watched this movie in a little, a little while. And when I came back to it, I'm like, God, these are just kids. And uh, I they're sexually that, active, Mike. Or how young are, are they? I'm talking about 14 or 15. You know, but I, you know, very similarly to the first Friday, uh, Friday the 13th movie, in which, like, you're looking at these girls, and you almost feel creepy for watching their love scenes because they're really, really young. You know, and yeah, mm. the teenagers. Yeah, it makes sense for them to be sexually active. Da 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 da. But at I the mean, same I time, mean uh, Amanda Weiss, Tina, who's the person that we see having sex here, she was 24 years old. I'm, I'm talking about the character within the story. I mean, I'm looking at Heather Langenkamp, and she looks like she's she like does. 13 to me. You know, she looks re- very young. And see, that's kind of, and that actually got me on, and w- without uncorking this entire can of worms, but I mean, just to throw it out there, the big thought that I had about Heather and the other, and especially Johnny Depp, who also looks very, very young in this movie. Yeah. Um, it occurred to me, I, I started thinking, man, why are horror movies so often interested in teenagers? And commercially, all three of us know it's because, well, because you know, teenagers are the driving audience for these kinds of movies in a lot of cases. You know, it's like we want to show our target audience protagonists who fit that role. We want to go, hey, you and the audience, we're going to kill you too. And that's why you should be scared. But at the same time, it's like I mean, they are also characters who are just barely not kids. And uh, they're now facing like life and death stakes without the help of their parents. You know, with Friday the 13th, they're set out in the middle of the woods. And with Nightmare on Elm Street, they are isolated by the non-belief of the adult characters around them. You know, but they're still barely just not kids. This is their like, like their first adult choices are sex, violence, life and death. There's a guy coming to kill us. No one believes us. We have to do something about ourselves. You know, there's a vulnerability to that. I mean, they're not strong. They have no resources. You know, they're not physically capable to beat up anybody. Well, you know, I think too. I mean, the horror movies in many ways, yes, they're aimed at teenagers. But they're also a reflection of a lot of the anxieties that I think teenagers have. I mean, one of the really powerful themes in this movie is that these children are suffering for the mistakes of their parents. Well, I, I, you know, let's just put a pin in the map on that because I, because John, you mentioned that uh, Freddie was wronged by the parents, and Vicky just said that uh, the parents are, you know, that they have committed a mistake, and it's, it's very seventh son of the seventh son, you know, the sins of the father X Y Z, but. We're talking about a guy who kidnapped, molested, and murdered 20 children and is let off on a, uh, on a technicality. You know, it's like, what are the parents otherwise to do? They're just going to be cool with this guy, just kind of going back to his boiler room and just kind of hanging out and continuing to do his thing until the cops finally get the whole thing. It's like in an, in an action movie, they would be called Paul Kersey and we'd be 100% behind them. But only because Freddy is coming after their children that we're going, oh, those parents, they did something wrong. No, they didn't do anything the fuck wrong. 
You know, it's the fact that they met evil with evil and then evil came back way even more evil. It's almost like it's the cover-up aspect of it is why they feel so guilty about it. And, of course, the fact that they could never reveal to the authorities or the public at large what they did because, you know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Yeah, so, and, and if there's any uh, sin, quote-unquote, it's the secretiveness of it. Right. Is not, not telling the children, not telling the authorities, da 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 and although I'm sure that the cops kind of, you know, John Saxon was involved. He is a cop, and obviously the cops turned a blind eye. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you could almost say, well, I mean, there's the divorce and everything else, but you know, mom is a sure. drunk, and one could wonder if the kernel of her being a drunk, you know, resides back in this this secret that she's living with. Oh, oh absolutely. I, and I, I don't think it's a kernel. I mean, if you yeah. think about, I mean, again, that's whatever Fred Krueger did. Like, no matter how much he deserved it, these people are murderers. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, they engaged a, in a conspiracy to commit to, murder. To commit murder. Boy, did this just, did we just fall down an ethical rabbit hole? Yes, the sins of the father and everything else. But it, yeah, I mean, there is the parents in this movie more than any other uh, uh, slasher movie. Certainly, in, you know, I mean, even uh, uh, Halloween the parents are, are a factor. They figure in their characters. She's a drunk. Dad's a cop. You know, we're depending on these people to help us, and they're, and they're failing us at every turn. And those are truths that ring true to teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, part of why this, this movie in particular was more successful. I think that's why it connects, is because it, um, it, it, that element rings true. That, you know, it, these are, this is... In many ways, this is about a, a movie. This is about teenagers whose parents let them down in a way for the first time. We start to see the fragility in adults who, up to this point, especially John Saxon, uh, these are adults that we look to for a long time as godlike figures who can do no wrong. Um, and here in this moment, we see that they have done wrong and that their children are paying the price. Ah, but Vic, let, let me offer two data points that aren't, aren't, aren't quite contravailing but are of interest in juxtaposition. Uh, data point number one being that, yes, you're absolutely right, uh, it's mentioned in dialogue that uh, Tina has the house alone for the weekend uh, because her mom is off in Vegas with the new boyfriend. And uh, when John Saxon tries to reach her to tell her that her daughter has been brutally murdered, uh, it's a pain in the ass. Like he, he has a hard time tracking mom down to get at her, you know, and go, Oh yeah, by the way, your, your daughter's just been murdered in your house, you know, but at the same time, John Saxon is the one and only parental figure in the entire movie that actually, uh, serves some kind of help and, uh, and actually pays off in the end, you know, so I, and he's distant because he's always busy. He's running around, uh, in a very organic manner. I mean, he's divorced, he's away, da-da-da-da-da, and obviously he's, gonna, he's, he's somewhat antagonistic at moments, but purely in an organic fashion. Like, we understand why he would be doubtful that you know, a mystery nightmare man is coming to kill them in their dreams. But at the very end, he's the one parent out of all of them who actually, like, breaks down a door, pulls a gun, yeah, I'm going to help you, da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I, it's a factor, and at the same time, Jack, John Saxon is the exception to the rule. 
Well, I mean, it, it's not like this whole movie's monolithic point, thankfully, and there are many other stories that try to make this point. The monolithic point is not all adults are morons. You know, it's more like you said earlier, it's representative of the inevitable realization that all kids have that their parents aren't perfect or infallible. And that is something we all must come to grips with at some point. And you also were alluding to it, but didn't use the phrase, but this is a coming of age film very clearly, you know, on some level, it, it represents that sort of uh, violent stage or violent transformation that sometimes happens when a child must become an adult before they uh, would desire to, or before is healthy or natural. This happens in life. You know, you're thrust into a situation where you have to grow up too quickly. And I think that kids relate to that. And I also want to make one more point about them being on their own or not being able to rely on their parents. I would posit that, that Wes Craven is saying that they can't even rely on God. Well, yeah, it's interesting that in later, you know, it's often mentioned that uh, Freddie becomes quippish uh, around part three or so. Uh, But I would say that his very first line of true dialogue in the entire series is when uh, Tina is dreaming and she's like, oh, God. And uh, Freddie's very first line is he holds up his fingers and he goes, this is God. You know, you're you're absolutely right. And um, reading off of my notes, what I was about to say was exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) But I, John, I am kind of keying off of what you just mentioned. It is not lost on me that uh, the danger that comes to these these kids, their kids, the danger that comes to our kids, these coming of age beats occur in their bedrooms. You know, whether it's sex with a boyfriend for the first time or a scary child molester man who's coming to murder them with finger knives, with his hands. He's going to take his hand. He's going to murder you. You know, I mean, it's like the, it's a horror movie that's, yeah, it's like, we don't, we don't have to put you in the ocean. We don't have to put you in a haunted hotel. We don't have to put you in a fucking summer camp. We're going to come to your bedroom and kill and haunt your ass. And uh, that is something that we haven't seen since Halloween, but in a far more ephemeral manner. I would just add that I think the the ultimate conclusion of that train of thought about the evil uh, that comes not just to these far out remote locations but starts to invade our bedroom. To me, the ultimate conclusion of that train of thought is the scene in uh, Juwan and then in The Grudge when uh, the the ghost is literally under the covers with her in that one uh, uh, frightening scene. And we get, we certainly get bits of that hints of that here. Um, But that's always what that makes me think of is the place where you are safest is in your bed with the covers pulled over you. And that idea that there's something under the covers with you is just horrifying. And it's the idea that something comes after you in your last bastion of safety is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I would say that um, uh, in deadly blessing, we get uh, the one and only scary scene in that entire otherwise piece of shit movie is the scene in which like the, the dead burned dad comes at her and he crawls up and you see his head underneath her covers. And then in new nightmare, which I would say is the other sincerely scary nightmare in Elm street movie. Uh, we have a sequence in which, uh, Heather as a grown woman has to reach down under the covers to bring her son out of Freddie's realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 and it's not lost on Wes Craven. Indeed. All right, John, so. change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, well, why you change the subject? I'm going to get another beer. 
Okay. Yeah, so I want to open this up to just the idea of discussing Freddy as a character, the way we discuss Jason from film to film and how he looks and the weapons he uses and sort of his strengths and his limitations and all of that. Let's kind of uh, analyze Freddy as uh, an antagonist and uh, just see where that takes us. I will say to kick it off that he's an extremely protean creature uh he can change his shape at will to fit whatever the circumstances or his desire you know as we all know anything goes in a dream and he takes full advantage of that the first time we see it in this film is when he elongates his arms uh beyond any you know conceivable human possibility and he's not locked into any physicality though which is Interesting because he's not a large or imposing guy at all in his true form. He's, you know, never shot in such a way that we're supposed to think that Freddy is a large or an imposing uh, man. He's just, he's a very average sized guy, which I think is an interesting choice. You know, they they do put a lot of bass under his uh, voice when he laughs uh, in a way that that doesn't match England's real voice at all. And uh, it was interesting to me that moment when uh, Tina encounters him for the first time in that dream alley and he extends his arms uh, to immediately, you know, it's kind of like, I, you know, to paraphrase Lovecraft, it's like, I mean, there's, you know, fear is the oldest emotion and fear of the un- of the uncanny is the strongest form of fear. And it's like when weird shit happens, that's when we're just like, hey, what? You know, it's like we don't have rules by which we can fight our enemy anymore. And all we can do is be scared. Yeah, exactly. He uh, has a deep, deep bag of tricks, you know, like basically he's only limited by his own imagination, which is uh, pretty powerful. And he also teleports like Jason quite a bit. He's except it makes sense here. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. It's 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 actually organically sold by the setup. Like Jason, Freddy thrives on the fear element. Like he he could just pop up behind you and stab you, but Freddy even I mean even more than Jason. I mean with Jason, it's something that we extrapolate from watching the films. that if you fall unconscious, he's not going to kill you because he likes to see the fear in your eyes while he does it. It makes much more organic sense from Freddy that he wants to torment you a little bit. He's not in a rush. He's not worried. Uh, he's in control in a way that that uh, uh, other slasher film villains sort of purport to be, uh, but without justification that Freddy has. Yeah, and you know, Vic, it's interesting that you you kind of bridge the gap to uh, J horror uh, because the thing that's always kind of been not scary to me about uh, Friday the Thirteenth movies, I, you know, I was never terribly scared of them when I was a kid. I mean, uh, you know, in, in other slasher films, is you know, there's always the thought in the back of my head that you could defeat this enemy by getting on an airplane. You know, it's like one running car is all you need to escape this. Uh, whereas with Freddy, uh, Freddy Krueger. Uh, he can afford to be patient and to toy with you and to cat and mouse with you because eventually you will fall asleep. And there's an inevitability to that. That is, there's a doom to it. You're cursed now, 
like in Juan or the ring where it's like eventually they're going to get you. But there's another side to that argument, which is sort of having to do with, you could say, one's imagination or willingness to indulge your imagination. But the counter argument to that is that we're all pretty much in agreement that Freddy does not exist and could not exist and is a figment of our imaginations. However, there's definitely the possibility that someone will hack you up with a machete. And so that just, it's, it's almost akin to watching a syringe go into an arm or seeing someone's, you know, leg being broken in a compound fracture that's so much harder for our brains to, to cope with than, you know, a head being cut off or something spectacular. It's just because that grounded in the reality of it. And I think that's why people like Jason, even if like Jason becomes a comic book character, when you get into his, you know, healing factor, we were joking about, you know, him being like Wolverine and things right. of that nature, but essentially nothing that Jason does is impossible in and of itself. And, you know, you could say that that's far scarier than this lunatic, lunatic trickster who appears in your dreams and plays games and drops one-liners on you and so on. Well, I, I mean, that is, ironically enough, I, 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 my, my thought process in going into the discussion about Nightmare on Elm Street on our Friday the 13th podcast, obviously we're leading into the next time we, 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 we get together is going to talk about F versus J as I say. <laughs> and, uh, but it is, let's compare and contrast these two characters and also the franchises that, that, that they've spawned. I mean, it's, it's in, you know, like you said, John, it's like the one is basically, he starts out as a very grounded, yeah, it's not, in, in the first movie, it's not even him. It's like a middle-aged woman, you know, uh, who goes nuts. And uh, I, I, as, as far out as that is, I mean, it's still extraordinarily grounded. Uh, we get that a woman can be driven by trauma to become a murderous person. That can happen in real life, and it has. Uh, and in the subsequent films, he's a kid, he's living out in the woods, and yeah, and we've dug into the timeline, and we've presupposed that there's a supernatural woman you know, underlying it, but basically, he's a dude in the woods who shows up with a machete and acts yeah. Whereas from day fucking one, Freddy Krueger is, uh, is a supernatural figure. I, you know, one trucks in reality, the other one trucks in dreams. So to kind of throw those two characters against each other in Friday the 1st and Jason, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, comparison. You can Hell see yeah. was why it was stuck in development hell for so long to figure out a way to get them together. Um, the other thing to me that I think is so outstanding about Freddy and, and just getting to the, I mean, the core of what we're doing when we talk about horror films is I think one of the key elements is we talk about isolation. Right. That in in any Friday, the 13th movie, at some point, somebody is locked in a bathroom and Jason is somewhere outside of it and they are isolated spatially. They can't go anywhere. Uh, you know, they have to, they, you know, we're, we're running away from something until we can't get anywhere. You're isolated in the woods. If you're in the Overlook Hotel, you're isolated by the snow. Um, and so I think when you get to something like this. What's frightening about it is as long as you buy into the concept, as long as you're uh, suspending your disbelief, you're isolated in a way that's almost psychological. Like you, 
you can run like crazy in your dreams. And it's something that they play with tremendously. When you get at the end, Nancy trying to climb up the stairs and the stairs are like, are like tar, um, you know, which is the kind of dream that everyone has. Yeah. You're free to run like crazy, but Freddie is everywhere. And that plays with that idea of, of isolation. I think in a way that a lot of people in 1984 hadn't seen before. Oh no, no one had seen before. I, I, you know, and if we're gonna call sleep, you know, the cousin of death, you know, I, I, and it's like you, you spend eight hours every twenty-four hour cycle alone. You know, typically, like, I mean, even if you're sleeping next to somebody, you're alone within your mind, within your dreams. You're unconscious, and uh, I mean, if there's someone in there with you who wants to do you harm, you know, I, it's like you know, and and then you try to tell anybody. Then uh, I mean, you were again feeling another layer of isolation, which is the isolation of the insane. You know, you're trying to tell people what's going on in your mind. Everyone's just like, "What? You're nuts! That's, Come on!" That's the the psychological isolation, and it's funny because in that way it's almost a temporal isolation because eventually, no matter what you do, you're going to fall asleep. Right. Yeah. And so exactly. all you're doing is buying as much time as you can with pots of coffee and you know amphetamines and whatever else you have at your disposal, but eventually you're going to fall asleep and Freddie's going to come for you. Right. I, I, it's, I mean, it's kind of like a, you know a killer who gets you uh, so long as you don't hold your breath or something like that. You know, it's like and eventually your body, you, you yourself, your body's needs will betray yourself. Yeah. And I and that, that's kind of why um I, I Craven plays kind of fast and loose with um. Uh, how the logic of the setup plays, but um, like uh, when uh, the, the unplugged phone rings and Nancy answers it, and um, Freddie's tongue comes out of the phone and licks her, and you go, "Oh, wait a minute, she wasn't asleep. So how can you do that when we are lacking from sleep?" I, I, we've already established from dialogue that she's gone from for seven days without sleeping, and uh, when you go, I think it's more than three or four days. You start taking micro naps. That's like you right. Fall, yeah, you fall, you start falling asleep for like ten or fifteen seconds at a time. You know, so I mean, even if you drink all the fucking coffee you want to, Freddie can still stab you really fast if, in in the face if he really wants to. And there's nothing See, you can do about it. There's no this, this film never shows someone like trying to stay awake and then their eyes just kind of close, which I think is part of the the genius of it is that the person is awake. And then they and the audience realize together that at some point that character fell asleep. Right. So, and I, I think any time you put the protagonist and the audience in the same emotional beat at the same time, you're doing the, the good work. Correct. And yeah. I think that, that it works fabulously. And that's my interpretation of what you're talking about there, Mike. I don't think she was awake when the tongue came out. I think we simply missed when she fell asleep. Yeah, she, she had a micronap. And Freddie Freddy was able to momentarily fuck with her. And then she is startled out of it. And uh, why doesn't Freddie kill her right then? Because. He's a sadist. He, yeah, because he, he likes fucking with her. And uh, I, mean, it a, I, mean, I mean, there are only so many kids on Elm Street. And he wants to make the most out of every one of them. You know who he kind of reminded me of watching this was the Joker. Yeah. yeah. Very apt comparison. I found that really interesting to think about, you know, I mean, we have a guy that just delights in the insane and chaos and anarchy and is having a great time with it. And at least in this film, he really isn't burdened by fear or ego or 
you know, an agenda. He is just, I mean, his agenda is, yes, he wants revenge, but his agenda is to toy with these, these people. Right. And... I, you know, very, very similar to, to like, say, the Joker or Loki. You know, he's a, he, he, I mean, he's a trickster-ish villain. You know, uh, I knew Trucks in Chaos. And, and he even subverts the rules of, of how revenge plays out. Because I, even in Friday the 13th, it's, it, it, we, like, we kind of squint and go, okay, Pamela's got a point. It, it's like uh, her son was left in the care of teenagers. The camp teenagers were fucking when they should have been watching her kid. He drowns, and now she's upset about that. And, like, even though she goes nuts and she goes way too far and murders a bunch of people, da-da-da-da-da, like, on some logical level, that kind of snaps together in a Lego-ish fashion. Whereas with Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, it's like, oh yeah, I killed twenty kids. You set me on fire, and I'm now I'm mad at you for that. And, and really, a testament to Robert England's performance. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at all of the the sort of slasher films of the '80s, I mean, this is the, in a way, the most iconic because there's a real actor playing a real character uh, in a way that you could switch actors through Friday the 13th. You could switch actors through Michael Myers. Um, there's only one Freddy Krueger due respect to, um, I was going to say Haley Joel Osment. Jack Earl Haley. Due respect yeah. to Jack Earl Haley. Uh, but there's only one Freddy Krueger and it's Robert England. He's a, he's a, he's a real actor and he brings a real, charisma and a real frightening level of insanity to this performance. I think that's why the Joker is such an apt comparison. And I think that he's actually deserving of being top billed in the sense of like Freddy versus Jason, or is it Jason versus Freddy? You know, who deserves that respect? I, I think it's absolutely Robert Englund. Freddy is never just the shape. He's never just the stuntman who happens to be wearing the, you know, the, the hockey mask du jour. But uh, it is interesting that you bring up I mean, Jack Earl Haley, uh, that he got that role by playing Warshock in uh, The Watchmen. And Warshock is, is you know, very similarly. I mean, he's another tricksterish. Uh, I mean, in that case, he's an anti-hero. But, I mean, he's a brutal, violent dude who trucks in violence. And there's, like, a, a sense of uh, uh, vigilante justice, but it's twisted. You know, I, I, I'm in the same way. It's like in another movie, Freddy would be, you know, a, an avenging spirit. And the kids are like, how dare you parents did this to this innocent man? And in this case, it's like, no, he really did that shit. They were perfectly justified in saying that's do not fire. Well, in a little yeah. way, I think the physicality had something to do with that. I mean, I don't think you cast The Rock to play Freddy Krueger. I mean, I, yeah. I actually think the fact that. Jackie Earl Haley is such a, a slightly built guy, and that that actually became part of what makes Freddy interesting is that on some level, this is just a smart, pervy, relatively good with uh, metalworking, apparently, average-ish guy who's who just found this way to become this this force of nature. It's not through his size or his strength or even what happened to him, Mike, as you alluded to him. It's not like there's any real, like, I can see why you would be able to come back from the dead because of this, because you're so aggrieved in the way that ghosts usually are. No, I mean, he got what was coming to him. It was just that this guy's like such a 
um, on a mental and psychological level so insidious that you can't kill him. He's more of a cockroach than anything. He's that much more similar to uh, Sadako from The Ring in, in that, you know, uh, you know the, uh, on the surface, there's a story that ordinarily would say, oh, we understand why the ghost has come back. We understand why the ghost has agreed. But in this case, it's like, no, there is just kind of evil in the world. And sometimes when you kill it, it makes it even more evil. And trying to, sed- you know, to sedate it or uh, play by the usual rules of the supernatural, the ghost, you know, these narrative rules that we're, that we're kind of touching on in other podcasts is like, no. All you're, t- you're just going to get murdered in the boiler well, Vic, I feel like you have something to contribute here, but I just want to throw out really quick. Like, what if you, what if this man, Freddy Krueger, had gone to prison and died on death row at 61 years old after 14 appeals and all these years on death row? Would he have been empowered to come back and be what he became? Or, in some way, did it matter that they gave him this particular death? I'm I'm gonna say it would matter because the idea of being haunted in my in my dreams by a 61 year old who died of lethal <laughs> injection just doesn't have the same power. I'm I'm jumping back a topic and I and I feel bad, but there's no other audience in the world that's gonna get this more than our audience. There was a, a cutaway on Family Guy where Peter says something to Chris like, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be better at seducing women than Jackie Earl Haley. And they cut to Jackie Earl Haley and he's in a club and he's dancing with this girl. And he's like, you know, I'm kind of famous. Uh, I was in a bunch of movies. And she's like, yeah, like what? And he says, well, you know, did you see me in a movie called Little Children where I played a child molester? Or in a movie called uh, uh, Watchmen where I played a serial killer? Or a movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street where I played a child molesting serial killer? (laughs) That's great. That's really good. It's really funny. Um, Something else that's really good is uh, Tina's death and her body being buffeted around as an invisible Freddy slashes her to ribbons on the frickin' ceiling of this bedroom. And in the process of this, she even inadvertently headbutts Rod, which I, I thought was awesome as a touch. It is as disturbing a kill as anything in the Friday the 13th franchise. I can't think of anything better. It's so cold. It's so hardcore. And for the workings of this film, as it, as it really kicks things into high gear, it's such a statement of threat of what Freddy represents and what he's oh, yeah. capable of. I mean, if we're, we're going to call you know, the, the, the opening 10 a statement of intention, holy fuck. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, this is how this killer operates. And this is what happens to you if he catches you. I mean, holy shit, dude. I mean, this is 11 on the 10 scale, man. You know? And it's also scarier if the bad guy can turn his or her victims into his or her acolytes. And that's just so horrible. It's something that vampires do. And when she shows up in the body bag, you know, not to really taunt uh, Nancy, but to just sort of, uh, in some way, be continue to be Freddy's pawn, I think that that's really, really chilling. Yeah, I, I, another thing that I had forgotten about uh, until I reached, we watched Nightmare on Elm Street again uh, was when Nancy, at the very, very end, goes into the dream boiler room uh, in search of Freddy to pull him out of the dream and, and defeat him. Uh, she keeps hearing the voices of all her dead friends. There's Glenn, there's Rod, there's Tina. And it's probably, it's, you know, you can tell yourself it's probably Freddy just uh, being a ventriloquist 
but uh, you know, on some level, you have to think it's almost like a Pennywise the Clown, where I mean, if he kills you, you don't just die. Like he drags you down to the sewers where we all float down here. You know? Oh yeah. Jesus yeah, I mean, there, there's a very strong implication in later films that he's harvesting these souls, you know, mm-hmm. that they belong to him. Uh, and I think that's established in this one. Well, I'd like to point out, too, just in terms of the the imagery is so much of what sets this film apart from a lot of the other films in this period. Her being dragged along the ceiling and leaving this kind of bloody trail on the on the ceiling of that bedroom while Rob looks on sort of helpless – I mean, it's it's right up there with the old woman in Exorcist three scrambling up onto the ceiling. I mean, it feels unnatural uh, in a way that that other films just don't have the infrastructure to create that kind of imagery. Um, uh, Craven really makes the best of that. It's part of why that death scene is so effective. And also because that is what he Rod being awake is witnessing. Mm-hmm. So we're really again establishing early on that. What happens in the dream world may not be seen in the real world, but the consequences can be. And that's mm-hmm. essential because otherwise, like, it's essentially meaningless what's happening. And it's also just really, really scary to see, like, it's like the, the entity or something, a film, that film with uh, Barbara Hershey, where, mm-hmm. you know, you're wa- watching something happen to someone and it's you know, it's some invisible force and there's nothing you as the onlooker can do about it. Yeah. I mean, it also, of the other things that Neely establishes is the extremely thin membrane between the dreaming and waking world. Because if Freddie picks you up and throws you when you're dreaming, then you get thrown across the room in the waking world. Jumping ahead to when Johnny Depp gets uh, murdered and he gets dragged down through a hole in his bed and a gigantic, fountain of blood comes out of his bed, which is probably the most gruesome fucking image that I've seen since like the, you know, it's like the elevator full of blood in the shining or something out of fucking Hellraiser, man. I mean, it's off the hook. And, um, and it's not just something that happens in dreams. It's like when John Saxon and the rest of the cops show up, like they spend the rest of that entire sequence talking about like, like they're just like, Oh God, you know, the paramedics pull up there. It's like, Hey, did you bring a stretcher? And that guy's like, yeah, I don't know. I should have brought a bucket instead. <laughs> You know, it's like, yes. you know, John Saxon goes up there. He's like, uh, you know, where's the coroner? And he's like, yeah, he's puking his guts out in the bathroom. You know, it's like, you know, like there's nothing left of Johnny Depp except for a fountain of blood on the ceiling. Well, there's, and, there's something to the fact that when Jason kills you, even when Michael Myers kills you to a lesser extent, um, you get your head cut off. You get a machete through the center of your skull. When Freddie takes his time with Tina, you're really, you see a drawn out, slow, bloody murder. Uh, Yeah. That's part of what makes it so effective is that it takes time. Like it is not a, it's not a jump scare. Um, It is a, it is a long drawn out, dread filled, gruesome scene. It's yeah. It's oh God. I would also you know, mention that I, I, I mean, it comes down to the weapon of choice because I, you know, in the case of Jason and his machete, we have a big, strong man with a large piece of steel who can presumably lop a human's head off. Whereas, with, you know, the finger knives, you know, unless he like jams you right in the eye or something like that, I mean, it's basically like a, a small slashing weapon. It's a, it's a weapon to be used for 
bleeding you out. It's it's a torture weapon more than anything else. Yeah, it's a very very cruel weapon. It's it, it's something, and I think it's meaningful that the open of the film is him fashioning this. Oh, dude. and just like what kind of a person has this master plan that he's going to make this, and there it just so tells many, you everything you need to know about there him. There's so many brilliant elements of this movie, and the fact that we just watch the fashioning of the murder weapon under the opening credits is genius. I, I mean, it's on par with the uh, the fashioning of um, Conan's sword under the opening credits of Conan the Barbarian. Obviously yeah. in a very different way, but it's like we're showing that the forging of the main character's primary weapon uh, has everything to say about that character. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth noting that even though Freddy uses diverse ways to kill people in the course of the films, you know, the finger knives, that glove, that claw of his is remains his signature from start to finish versus um, Jason, of course. You know, the machete, it can be argued, becomes his signature weapon. And in the eyes of the filmmakers of Freddy versus Jason, it is. But, you know, Jason has to find the variety of his kills essentially through the implements, whereas Freddy uses the circumstances and your own fears as the variety, but that the constant is that hand of his. And I want to say that another scary thing about him that we haven't touched on is that he knows your fears. And again, that's, that's part of that intimacy is that somehow you have no secrets from Freddy because whatever you're afraid of is going to end up being in the nightmare that he kills you in. Like for you or I, Mike, you know, if Freddie came after us, Oh, there would be some tarantulas, man. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it's my nightmare scenarios as well. <laughs> but I, I, I'm talking about that glove. Uh, I was blown away by the fact, and obviously I'd known this, but I, and again, I haven't seen the movie in a long time that, uh, Nancy's mom kept a souvenir from the night that they murdered Freddie. Uh, and that is the bladed glove. And she keeps it in the furnace in the basement. I never before have I had, uh, have I seen such a concentrated load of uh, horror plutonium loaded into uh, the setting uh, of the situation. I, I knew it would almost be like, Hey mom, I'm getting haunted by this guy. Oh, and then like at plot point two, mom goes, "Oh yeah, well you're getting haunted by him because we buried him in the basement, and that's why." Freddy's death and the reason why he's coming at these kids and their nightmares is um, it's a secret. It's a secret that all of the parents keep. They're unavailable and they drink too much. The secret is personified by the claw that she keeps in the furnace, hidden in the basement. You know that that. Freddy is like the personification of the secret that, that keeps him uh, away from the kids. But he burbles up from the basement, you know, and when Nancy has to go get him, she has to go into the basement farther down, farther down, farther down. And like a very classic uh, in most cave manner. The other big part of this film is Nancy's efforts to stay awake and then the agency that she ultimately takes as she concocts these booby traps and this plan, which she essentially is going to have to execute on her own, which is great because Glenn is kind of a fuck up and her dad is, you know, dealing with the death of the fuck up Glenn 
and they they're not on the same page they're not comparing notes there's a schism between father and daughter and so let's talk about that guys like what's sort of your um what's your relationship with this this heroine and and her approach to taking out the villain and it, it definitely differs from the traditional horror film. She offers a level of resourcefulness that none of the final girls in Friday the 13th by and large seem to offer. They, they're capable of some clever things, but she's the first one who's able to come up with and execute this plan in this way that, uh, that, that really makes her stand out is smart and resourceful and, and intelligent, someone that you want to root for. Um, I do want to just say this since we, we touched on Glenn a little bit. I see when I watch this movie virtually no hint of the star that Johnny Depp is to become. He's fine <laughs> in this movie, but he's, this is by no means a knockout performance. Uh, I don't know if you guys, if you guys feel the same way, but... Oh, I absolutely agree. Well, you know, it, it, and it's interesting you touch on that because I not that long ago I, I, I rewatched uh, The Burning, which is another uh, you know horror movie from the early eighties. Uh, I mean, that one was produced by the Weinstein's. It was one of their extremely early films. And uh, the thing that jumped out at me about The Burning was the fact that Jason Alexander is a supporting character in this movie, but he's like very, very clearly like the most charismatic guy in this ensemble you know it's like i mean he it almost feels like he's an actor who was playing like a really peripheral character and because he was just so funny that they kept like throwing him into situations it was like hey let's get jason in there what's jason up to da, 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 da. and it's something very distinct to this movie is that they do have to establish rules like there's no rules in a friday the 13th movie jason's never going to die and you can shoot him and you can hang him and you can burn him and you can bury him and you can chain him to a rock and drop him to the bottom of the lake. Um, he's just going to keep coming back. Uh, and I think because of the supernatural elements of this, which are so distinct from a lot of the other films that we've talked about, uh, Craven had to come up with a set of rules by which maybe he could, you know, he could affect some, some change and draw the film to something that felt like a resolution and what's nice is most of the time when you apply those rules, uh, it feels cheap. It feels like you're, you're just trying to come up with something. You're trying to come up with a third act twist. Your mm -hmm. second plot point is, all right, if you just read this incantation and bury his bones in consecrated ground, uh, everything will be fine. Um, but he's done a nice job in, in scripting the film and setting up the bones that lead Nancy to this. All right, I'm going to pull Freddie out of the dream like I did his hat in the, you know, in the earlier scene, uh, which is even that uh, uh, presaged by the scene in which she burns herself on the, the arm, burns her arm on the, the hot pipe to wake herself up and then has the mark on her arm. Um, I mean, that's all the mark of very smart writing. So that it doesn't feel like a cheat when she's like, I'm going to set up all these traps and bring him out of the dream and kill him. Um, I mean, that's, that's smart writing and it, and it works and it makes certainly the setup to the climactic scene very effective. Absolutely. And I, I will say, uh, you know, she is, uh, her mom actually has a beat in which she says, you know, Nancy, you're special because you face things. And uh, what we see consistently throughout this entire film is none of the rest of the characters will face 
reality. They either get drunk or they run off to Vegas with their boyfriend or else they get too tied up in a work or they don't believe the story from their daughter or even Glenn is like, eh, what, serial killer, what, in our dreams, whatever. You know, no one just kind of takes the evidence and puts it together or else they, you know, they, they shy away from it. She is the one character and that's what makes her a protagonist who's like, this is what's going on and we have to do something about it and this is what I'm going to do about it and that's, that's that. You know, she's, uh, and, and that's what makes her such an effective protagonist because, again, she's really young. She's a, li- she's a girl, you know, and not physically imposing whatsoever. But, I mean, she kind of ties into that trope uh, of, of Craven films with the booby traps uh, that we saw in Last House on the Left and uh, Hills Have Eyes, you know, uh, that we give characters booby traps in order to defeat more powerful villains. They use their wits, you know, but what's interesting to me above and beyond the booby traps is uh, she's the aggressor in that climactic sequence. And guys, like when we were talking about uh, Friday the 13th part seven, you two were really both enamored by the fact that this girl like puts Jason on his heels and it took them six and a half movies to get there. And Nightmare on Elm Street does it in one because by the end of the film, like she is beating the shit out of this guy. I mean, there's one really interesting beat in which um, she's hunting him in his own inmost cave in the dream boiler room. And uh, finally he shows up and she's like, where are you, Freddy? Where are you? Come and get me. Da, 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 da. And then even when she comes back to her house and she's like, oh, man, I've lost him. And Freddy jumps out of bushes for anybody else in the entire world. That would be, oh, no, the dream serial killer has come to get me. And she tackles him. Into the bushes. Yeah. And he goes, ah! <laughs> That's another advantage of his size. You know, like yeah. she can somewhat believably go toe to toe with this guy in certain situations because he's not Jason Voorhees, you know? Right. And so it has a, a storytelling benefit to it. I, I'm curious to hear your guys' reaction to this. I could not, off the top of my head, even after doing this podcast, name the actress who played the final girl in Friday the 13th, one, two, three, four, five, etc. But I knew going into this that Heather Langenkamp was the main actress in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and she didn't do much else. We give the performers due credit, um, but I really think that she stands out as an actress in this. Uh, and, and just in general, like there's a reason that horror fans know Heather Langenkamp and don't know a lot of the actors and actresses who have played similar parts in similar movies. Well, if you were just going to stack up all the Friday the 13th films and all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and say, well, just rank them objectively. You know, what's the best movie here? Clearly, A Nightmare on, on Elm Street is the best movie in the entire bunch. And that, that includes her, that includes the editing, that includes the soundtrack, that includes the cast in general. Like, this is just the best movie from best script, best concept. Every, in every way, this is the best movie. And all three of us have, you know, some degree of background in, in the industry. And it's like, and there's some movies that... Like we loved when we were kids, but now we grew up and you know learned about screenwriting and storytelling and and you know the film industry and how it works and da 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 da. And we kind of look at back at them as like guilty pleasures. Whereas this one, like the more I learn about horror, the more I learn about film and filmmaking, 
like the more I enjoy this. I'm just like, God damn, is this fucking good? Well, the concept yeah. is just off the charts. It's, oh, a, it's a yeah. 10 on the 10 scale. So two more things I wanted to get into um, before we call it a night. And they're both kind of tied to the ending and her mother. And the first is we see Freddie ablaze throttling Marge, I guess is the character's name, Nancy's mother, and setting her on fire. And this is quite disturbing. And the the net of it is that apparently he 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 kills the mom and sucks her soul off to hell. That's the first you know part of this two part conversation that I want to topic that I want to get into. What did the what was your reaction to that? That we just see this woman vanish into the bed and and dad sees it and nancy sees it and we we kill off mom freddie has won in some important way at least a a major victory i think i actually think this is one of one of the very few aspects where i feel like the effects work is kind of thin um it it didn't work for me terribly well uh just visually um I don't know. It's you can you can feel, especially after everything that's transpired up to this point, you can feel that Craven is going for something substantial. It doesn't hit home with me. This is not the this is this is not uh, the strongest moment in the film. It's not the the climax that you really want. I mean, because that's really what it really is, is the showdown. Uh, that comes just after is really the moment that I feel like Wes Craven has been building to. This feels meh. Well, know. he immediately undermines it. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's yeah, part two. That's part two. And that's really the more interesting conversation, which is just that we, in short order, cut from that to this sort of illusory victory. It feels like an old saw now, but she beats Freddie by basically saying, I'm not afraid of you. She calls him nothing. She doesn't believe in him. And that makes him go away, you know, as if like only the fear of the victim will give the killer his power. What are your thoughts on that? John, I think it, it's, it's interesting because it does lead into uh, everything that gives birth to Freddie versus Jason uh, yes. the, that mythology that that Freddie is born of the myth and the fear, and again the stuff from Candyman, which is by itself pretty effective. And you do have the one hint they give of where where Freddie is born is that nursery rhyme that the girls jump rope to. So there is this sense that there is this underlying kind of myth of Freddy Krueger is going to come for you in your dreams. Um, that these teenagers have been raised on, they don't. I don't feel like Craven sets it up well enough for it to pay off in this scene, but it does at least tie into it a little bit. I mean, you do get the sense, like uh, Mike was saying, Nancy is the character who who stands up to him, who faces up to him. It is the strength of a teenager to stand up to. Uh, the mistakes and the, the the things that their parents did who are able to overcome them uh, rather than succumb to them. And that gives it a, a enough of a thematic completion that 
it, it works as an ending to the film. Well, you could argue that on some level it's metaphorical and, and in this part of the film, if not the film as a whole, but this represents the idea that our fears are what make us weak. And the boogeyman doesn't exist. Freddy Krueger, again, like I said before, doesn't exist. And you only give that power if you allow it, if you let it paralyze you or make you weak or make you do stupid things or whatever it is, that by mastering your fear, you can do what needs to be done. And so on some level, Freddy just represents that raw fear. And if you can just be like, you know what? I'm not having it. Then you've, you've achieved a tremendous victory. I think uh, uh, the, the idea that Craven is tapping into is something that's very common to horror and, and especially uh, to big horror characters. I and kind of keying off something that you said, Vic, I, I think, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, Halloween, you know, Michael Myers is referred to as the boogeyman, you know, the little kid says, Oh no, the boogeyman is here. And the babysitter's like, no, 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 there's no thing as boogeyman. And guess what? There's a boogeyman. Uh, Jason Voorhees is very much like a he's campfire tale come to life. You know, you're sitting around a campfire, and one of the counselors is like, you know, back in the day, this little kid got killed, and now he's roaming the woods. And guess what? There really is a guy with a machete roaming the woods. And in Candyman, it kind of inverts that. He says that I, I, I'm, I'm only as strong as people believe in me. If some, and people stop believing in me, then I have to murder somebody else to keep them believing in me. And, I, you know, Freddy is the personification of a nightmare. I mean, it, it's a movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street. The characters, yeah, I mean, and this is one of the wonderful things about Craven's mentality. I, you know, Vic, like I said, he's a really smart guy. And uh, we see this strain of meta thought process throughout a lot of his films, not all of them, uh, but especially in this one, we see a meta idea that a horror movie is a nightmare. I know films are dreams that we can create in a physical way and share with other people, then a horror movie is thereby a nightmare that we can shoot and share with other people. And thereby, I mean, it's like, this is literally a nightmare. And uh, when we get to the end of the film, I mean, the movie starts making all these really fast and loose choices in terms of its own mythology, in terms of its own rules. Uh, you know, I, you know, Nancy is able to, you know, kind of, I mean, you know, her mom gets sucked into a bed. John Saxon comes into her room and just kind of grimaces at the sight of his ex-wife getting set on fire and sucked into a bed and mashing. And then he just kind of goes, all right, sweetie, I'll be downstairs. <laughs> and then she's left alone in the room and Freddie shows up again and she goes, I'm turning my back on you and da-da-da-da-da. I'm fulfilling Johnny Depp's promise that this is what I have to do in order to defeat a nightmare. And that's what we say to the audience. It's like, you're scared of these only because uh, you're scared of them. And it's like, you know, I, I mean, a horror movie is really, and this is one of the wonderful things about horror films, is we collect a bunch of strangers into a dark room and we tell them that you're going to watch something on a screen that doesn't exist. And the people in that room still react as if they're in danger. They flinch, they scream. And it's a wonderful thing about this genre at its very core. I think that Nightmare on Elm Street is about that on a really, really meta core level. And uh, so when we get to this very end in which uh, Nancy turns her back on Freddy and he vanishes, but then, and then she makes a wish. She says, I wish that my mom and all my friends were back. And guess what? All her mom and friends are back. 
But then she wakes up and uh, quote unquote, and it's daytime, but it's really foggy outside. And we have mom and her friends are there and they pick her up in a car and we start to pull away. And then we get Freddie's sweater as a convertible over the car. And then mom gets sucked through the thing. And even though it feels like really like clunky, gotcha, stereo, uh, uh, like storytelling choices that, that violate its own set of ideas. It still feels like we're kind of saying to the audience that everything that we've seen, this entire 90 minutes is Freddy's long game torment of this character. Mike, that was, that was a, a beautiful breakdown of horror films in general, and especially as they pertain to this. And I want to thank you for it. Mm. Really? Um, well, you know, six, six Guinness later and uh, I turn into a <laughs> Fair enough, sir. We all turn into philosophers after six Guinnesses. Pick a pub in London right now and uh, I bet you'll find uh, someone who can elucidate that well. But I agree with you. There is something clunky about that ending and yet it fits. And when I say that ending, I mean the, the bit where the car door closes and yeah, the sweater thing. I mean, it's it's... It's almost it's almost a bit thick, but you're right that it is this this kind of collective idea that maybe we have control over our fears and maybe we don't. And when you go into a movie theater, you're but you're you're surrendering to it, and that's why, John, you we've talked a lot about the the groundedness of Friday the Thirteenth versus the supernaturalness of A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I think that the thought. Certainly up until those last few minutes, uh, the amount of thought that Wes Craven has put into the rules and the universe allows a willing audience to suspend disbelief and buy into it basically the same way that we do to the idea of, you know, a maniac with a machete running around the woods. Um, and it, but that, that amount of thought is what makes a supernatural horror film so much harder to sell to an audience compared to something that's more grounded. I mean, you need to talk about Silence of the Lambs or Seven. Uh, those films will frighten a lot more people because they're more prepared to buy into that grounded element. In a weird kind of way, I think that because cinema is comprised of dreams, I think that you are buying into like something that is ephemeral, but you're just going to decide that you're going to be scared of it anyways. I, and I think that supernatural uh, stories are thereby that much easier to sell to a, a horror movie audience because I mean, again it's like if i see something about a maniac uh, i i think you know a gun a plane you know these are things i mean he's a solvable situation you know whereas uh, nightmare on elm street juan it's unsolvable but i'm like i'm in it's a world i'm in the world of the movie you know it's not in my world where i can beat it up you know, like Nancy, you know, it's like Nancy goes into the world of the movie of Nightmare on Elm Street, pulls Freddy out and beats the shit out of him. You know what I mean? It's like when we watch like a Nightmare uh, Friday the 13th movie, I mean, it's like they eventually had to make him a supernatural threat because otherwise eventually you get to part six, part seven, part eight, and you're eventually going to see a dude who, you know, is going to be able to beat him up. And it's like right. if he wasn't a zombie, then we would eventually get that. Mike, are you suggesting that if I stabbed a corpse with a fence post and it was struck by lightning, that it wouldn't spring back to life? <laughs> they, they had to make him supernatural in order to make him undefeatable eventually. 
And yeah. that's why they, yeah. So it's like that. That's why I, I think that the new line movies are like they have very little to do with Jason Voorhees. Oh well, now he's a spirit. Now he's a robot. Da 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 da. You know. So on some I'm, level, the ending of this film is undermining a lot of the thematic underpinnings that we've been talking about because it's much more nihilistic than you would think, like a coming of age story or conquering your fears. And yeah, I mean, it could be argued that the ending of this film is just kind of playing Me Too with Carrie and the Friday the 13th series where we have to have an ending like this and don't think, don't take it as anything more than that, that, you know, we have to make her victory uh, Pyrrhic and suggest that, you know, evil won. Or you could say that this is quite intentional. And you could say that it's not just a gag or a gimmick or, you know, an obligation of the genre. And in fact, as Mike mentioned 15 or 20 minutes ago, this is sort of the um, Freddy's long game just playing out. And I find that question really intriguing to consider. I do too. I do too. And again, I think that's, that interpretation is supported by everything that we've seen in this movie. On some level. We're also very much representing teenagers moving on out of childhood and things like that. But, I mean, it's really a kick in the gut to end this way. I mean, if you take take it seriously, it's it's quite horrible that to suggest that she she lost. And like we we can also can't forget that this was the first movie. We didn't know Heather Langenkamp would ever be seen again, let alone come back for a new nightmare. Um it really is very bleak and very dark to suggest that uh, she never escaped the dream, and that that sort of echo chamber of torment that she's trapped in, where does it even end? Because we don't even know that she dies at the end of this. It, it's very disturbing. I've yeah. had, I should point out, I've had a nightmare like that <laughs> where, I, where, where I, was, I was dreaming, I was in college, and I had a I had a mattress and box spring on the floor next to the window. And so I had, I think about 10 consecutive dreams. It was a nap in the middle of the afternoon where I woke up and looked at the window and I saw a car pull into the spot that would have been my roommate. And then I would go out and the apartment would be weird. And then, you know, something else would happen, something else would happen. And then I would wake up and I would look at the window and I would see my roommate's car pull in. And then I would go out and something else weird would happen. And that happened on a cycle literally like 10, 12, 15 times. I lost count of how many times until the last time it happened, I woke up and I looked out the window. My roommate's car pulled in and then I looked over and I realized that my room was different than it was supposed to be. And I literally fell out of the bed screaming. And I woke up out of the bed screaming. Um, Damn. Yeah, I live in fear of those kind of dreams, but I think that on some level I don't hate myself because I have never the dark side of me or whoever's running the nightmare show has never fully taken advantage of that. But I am often aware that I'm thinking that I'm in my room or in my bed and I'm actually totally asleep and dreaming. And I've never had anything really horrible happen that that you're you're so convinced that you're awake, 
but anything could freaking happen. And it would be so infinitely more scary than a situation where on some part of your conscious, the levels of your mind, you are, you are aware that you're dreaming, you know, like this is a little far fetched or this is kind of crazy. You know, this doesn't add up to that. But when you're really like just lured in by something that's so convincing and then like, what if, what if your subconscious truly pulled the rug out from under you and did something horrible in that moment? Like that would be the worst nightmare I've ever had in my life. And I haven't had that experience. I always wake up later and I'm like, oh my God, when I thought I was waking up from that nightmare, I was actually in another dream. Right. It's just, it's that. John, that inability to free yourself from your dream. Yeah. That if that if that is in fact the case, if Freddie is, if this all is just a long con where where Nancy is is maybe never going to be able to wake up from this. Death um, would be a release at that point. If he just killed her, that would be merciful. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean that idea that she might never know whether she's awake or asleep. That's a that's a horrifying and and really dark way to end the movie. And I certainly think you're right. I mean, that's that suggestion is there. You know, guys, I, I have to wonder. Uh, we had earlier touched on the idea that after Freddie kills you, you become kind of part of his uh, his ensemble. You know, Tina becomes. Uh, you know, she's in the body bag. She gets dragged away uh, later on. Glenn kind of calls to her. You know, Nancy. Da 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 da. I have to wonder if those characters know that they're dead. Mm-hmm. Are wow. they just in an endless nightmare that never goes away? And every yes. once in a while, it involves someone that they know. Oh, hey, I'm staring at Nancy in a classroom through. Oh, oh, but it's weird. Oh, right, I'm in a body bag. You know, you almost have to wonder what Nightmare on Elm Street looks like from the POV of Rod, uh, Tina, Glenn. You know, da 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 da. The twenty children that Freddie murdered before he was killed X, Y, Z. It looks like hell. Exactly. And, and, and I, I, and it's not lost on me that, uh, you know, he lives in a boiler room where it's really hot and there's a lot of screaming and it's, you know, subterranean, you know, it's a really easy comparison to an inmost cave to a Christian hell, you know, X, Y, you know, da, 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 da. And those but, little uh, girls playing their jump rope and singing the song. I mean, they're clearly his, Hellhounds, his yeah. familiars, yeah, and but you know they were once his victims, yeah. Like yeah. He, he, in all likelihood, he stuck his finger knives into those little girls, you know, back in 1978. And for from this point forward, they're always singing their little song and playing jump rope whenever he summons them from from his hell. I, I, and again, it's it's kind of like a it becomes almost you know we're talking about Greek myth where uh, you know you can go into the underworld and summon up you know, the spirits of the dead to do your bidding, you know, to play out these little scenes. And extrapolating out from that, John, the first time we see them is in the waking world. What what we perceive to be the waking world. You know what I yes. mean? Like if, if that is the role that, the, that those little girls play, there's a sense in which maybe Nancy has dreamed all of this and will simply never wake up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that Mike said earlier, like the, the, th- Thin, the gossamer thin membrane between dream and reality in this film. And then I, I suggested that I think we're never 100% sure what side of that 
curtain were on in the film. So you can't, I don't think you can objectively say, well, that was in the real world and that wasn't in this film, which I actually really like about it. There's another weird juxtaposition between uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday, and Friday the 13th is in Friday the 13th, throughout the course of the films, we keep seeing uh, there, there, there's kind of a collective consciousness about the, uh, the, the near dwellings of uh, Jason Voorhees. Like uh, in one or the other film, we see like a pile of clippings, uh, newspaper clippings. Uh, you know, he takes a photograph for the newspaper in part five. You know, that's why, they, like, uh, you know, by the time even Jason X, oh, yeah, you know, he killed hundreds of people back in the day. Da, 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 da. Whereas in the world of Nightmare on Elm Street, like, Freddy Krueger can murder 20 children. And it's somehow not something that the kids of the same neighborhood are aware of. I mean, even if it's, like, 10 years later, it's like, I mean, guys, I grew up in Des Plaines, Illinois. I was right down this fucking street from John Wayne Gacy when he was doing his shit, you know. And it's like, we were intensely aware of John Wayne Gacy. You know, it's like there was no such thing as not knowing about John Wayne Gacy or if there was a Fred Krueger down the street. You know, I mean, we would well, the really know. The only about- logic to that in this case is that your parents and the parents around there had no reason to conceal it. And in this case, like everyone basically agreed they weren't going to tell their kids and you know, it's pre-internet. So it's actually more a flaw in the logic of the film than I think a really, you know, good choice, well executed. But I mean, you could give it a pass in the sense that nobody wants to talk about it and it's not a media sensation in the way that, you know, it, it, it might be now. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, Obviously, John Wayne Gacy didn't have the internet either, so it's right, a reach. Right. I, I, and that's kind of the thing about that. That's the other unique thing about this film is it gives itself the permission to operate on dream logic. And I, I very often when we've done these podcasts about Friday the Thirteenth movies, uh, something will pop up, and the three of us will go, "Well, that would be really cool if the screenwriters actually meant that." You know, there was a supernatural element that Jason controlled the storms, X, Y, Z, that the curse was involved, and we all know we're, <laughs> that it's just shitty writing and shitty filmmaking. But we're kind of lading into a more interesting element because we like these movies and we like the idea of it being just smarter. Whereas in this film, like when things are clunky like just kind of a half-assed ending where it's just like the choices are purely like, let's have something scary happen. It's like obviously a dumb choice, but because it's about dream logic, it's about nightmares. It's like, you know, even, even when something is bald facedly, just like come on, we're just throwing the rules over our shoulder and going, yeah, what the fuck? Freddie pulls up in a convertible. What are you going to do? It's like, it's still a dream. So you can just kind of go, I don't know. It's dream logic. Maybe she's having a nightmare. Maybe the whole thing's a nightmare. I don't know. Of course, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Vic, any final thoughts about this film? This just this second occurred to me. You know, Johnny Depp turned up for a, a fairly funny cameo in Twenty One Jump Street. I wonder if they were going to reboot Friday the Thirteenth or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Maybe they should try and get Johnny Depp to play Freddy Krueger. Oh, <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, really, like that's. You know, it's funny, in a weird way, he's been working his way toward that role over the last 25 years. I would say that uh, Captain Jack Sparrow is also a trickster character, but he's very much, yeah, with kind of a dream logic to him that often goes 
on this side or that side of reality or the underworld or you know dream version of reality uh but he's kind of the good version of a trickster character you know and so i mean it wouldn't be that far of a stretch it's not i mean johnny depp has made essentially his career out of playing these bizarre supernatural characters you know that fit into one mythology or another and it would be kind of mind-blowing to have him come back and play Fred Krueger. Uh, so, oh, I just wanted to mention as one last little side note, anecdote, whatever, that uh, you mentioned she called him Freddy. I am pretty sure he's referred to as Krueger or Fred Krueger. I don't think he really was going by Freddy at this point. It may have true. popped up once, but... Yeah, he, he's very much still, like, uh, like he, he doesn't get, like, nickname status for a little yeah. bit yet. I mean, it's kind of like uh, Jason as Hockey Mask. Like, this very iconic element of the character doesn't show up in the first movie. I mean, they, they treat him like he is a scary adult. He is Fred. <laughs> yeah, and I, I kind of find that scarier, you know? I like the way that he's Kruger. Or, yeah, he's, you know, he's like, no one's sidekick. He is a serial killer who murdered children. No, no one's calling him like, yeah, it's not like no one calls John Wayne Gacy Johnny, you know, guys, he is he is credited on IMDb as Fred Krueger. Love Mm. that. So there you go. Wikipedia, however, insists on referring to him as Freddy throughout its synopsis. So somebody, one of you guys get on there later tonight and change that. Thanks. All right, on that note, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Thanks, guys. That was a very stimulating conversation. Hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, next time, we'll do Freddy versus Jason. Woo! Right on. Can't wait. Outstanding. All right, see you guys. Adios. Adios.